Hi, my name is Matt, and welcome to the bonus mini episode of the Champagne Comedy Podcast. In episode 36, where the Late Show team made a Sydney episode to cover the 2000 Olympic bid win, there was a live sketch where they played a role of the Biosphere 2 team which had come out of their containment and took questions from journalists in the crowd. One of these journalists was Laurie Zion, who was then a Triple J radio presenter. Laurie has an extensive history being a music journalist, writer, researcher and media personality for over 30 years. But he has more of a personal connection with the D-Generation slash Late Show slash Working Dog team, starting with a friendship with one cast member in the early 1980s. I wanted to know more about Laurie's background and he agreed to have a chat as soon as my cheque was cleared by the bank. Laurie Zion, thank you for joining. Uh, it's a great pleasure. What is your background, in fact, with media? Uh, so my background in media kind of intersects a bit with Santo Chueros. Um, what happened was when I when I finished my arts degree, I did an honours thesis at Melbourne Uni, and that was on pop music in Australia in the 60s. And then for three years after that, I tutored politics at Monash, but I started a PhD which was also on pop music in Australia in the 60s. So part of the research for that, of course, was researching the media itself. And during the period I was doing that, there was um, a great ABC uh, radio presenter, Derek Gill, who would get me on his program every now and then to go over you know, what was happening with bands in regional Victoria during this period. And um, you know, it's funny now to think about doing a history project in the early 80s or mid-80s about the 60s because 20 years isn't, you know, having got to where I am now, isn't such a huge gap. But we we had a lot of fun doing that. And then um, I also had started, I did well, one-off segments on something on Triple R. And I was actually really interested in, in radio and in, you know, the emerging forms of public radio and community radio and FM radio. Uh, as well. So, but the media, the media side of my career as a, you know, full time professional trainee started in 1988 where I got a, an ABC traineeship and that was a kind of strange intake of people for radio, most of whom were notionally destined for Radio National, where we got a nine month training period and I was part of that and I did, you know, like the other, People in my group, I did a place, I did a series of three placements, the final of which I had to go from Melbourne to Sydney for the Sydney only station Triple J, uh, at, which I got a placement at, I think, because of my research interest in music. And so that was kind of how it started. And, um, you know, I, I was one of the people who set up the first Hot 100 at Triple Hot 100 at Triple J, along with some other people. And, from that, I kind of ended up just staying put and then, you know, developing um, some other programs or presenting other programs and developing other programs and producing. So over the period the Late Show was on, I was actually based in Sydney the whole time. You mentioned uh, that you had a connection with Santo Chilaro. Yeah. Was he the first and direct connection that you had with the D-Gen team? Uh, yeah, he was. So, so I remember... Santo and I became friends in 1980, and I think he was a first year student at the time. I was in third year, but I lived in a I lived at Ormond College at Melbourne Uni, so residential hall, and I had a friend there who was really good friends with him, 
um, Phil Pedley. And so through Phil, I met Santo and, um, you know, we, we, we shared a lot of common interests and um, we'd, we'd hang around together quite a bit. Um, and then uh, in I finished, I actually finished at Melbourne Uni in 1981, but Santo and I were really good friends by this stage. And I was still uh, kind of using the library at Melbourne Uni pretty much every day I wasn't teaching at Monash. And um, so, you know, Santa and I would play pinball together. We'd talk about music a lot. Um, I remember getting invited over to his family home <laughs> for lunch one day. Uh, I'd never actually been invited to an Italian family for lunch. And I remember that when his mum sort of offered me some more um, pasta melanzini, I, I said, sure not realising that this was the entree and then there was a main course before. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the kind of professional, for want of a better term, um, connection came about in 1983 because uh, I was at the time also writing lots of kind of um, satirical songs and playing piano. I was playing piano in bars. And um, Santa said to me he'd been, he was going to be part of a group of people you know, in the annual law review, um, for, this was 1983. And I think sort of off the back of that, I thought, oh, I should try to write a song about a friend of mine who's studying law at Monash. And so I did that and played it to Paul Callio, who was the director of the law review, and he said, you're in, you know, and can you do this? Because um, I wasn't really up for acting. And I, I, I've never been that happy about singing but I had this song and then I, it turned out I had a couple of other songs as well and I joined the review band and it's it's incredible to think back to that time now that this was a sketch comedy show with musical interludes that ended up being a kind of cult thing in that um, there was a, a, a famous Thunderbird sketch there are a couple of other sketches in the show and that the the whole show was completely sold out. It was impossible to get a ticket to it. And it was, you know, it was held in some theatre venue at Melbourne Uni. But somehow or other, during the process of that show, um, the, it, it was obvious that there was more you could do with this group of people in, in, in varying ways. And, um, you know, that's really the genesis of um, a review that then Let's Talk Backwards was done the year after, which toured nationally, which I was tangentially involved with. I did some songs for them and did some uh, on-stage stuff with them at Monash Uni. And there was a sort of um, uh, comeback season in Perth after they'd done a season there. But um, I was never, you know, I was never going to become a core part of that particular team. Uh, But I had so much fun working with them over that period. And... You know, the, it, I, I particularly remember being in, going back to the law review, being in um, at Melbourne Uni in you know some room in the Union Building, where Tom Gleisner and Santo and others were actually writing sketches and how forensic they were in being able to try to balance <laughs> the kind of chaos of comedy with really strategic choices about how sketches could be written, and. I always thought, you know, it, it sounds wise after the event, but I always thought this was a team that actually could do do a lot more with what they achieved in the law review. And um, I didn't imagine, and I'm sure they didn't imagine it would go on to become 
um, <laughs> working dog and do all these things over the years. But I certainly saw this as being something that was, uh, you know, more than just one a one-off union show. According to your history of uh, your writings and your research, your stories, and that they are like they trust you with publishing works or writing about them. In fact, I've got right here. I just reach out to the side. Sorry, um, <laughs> that you wrote a, a small piece. The front piece uh, for the Frontline book. Yeah. The, yeah, the script book. So you're a very trustworthy uh, writer or author or journalist. <laughs> you got so many labels, I don't know what to call you. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad I've had all those labels in my life because um, I think now, you know, I've now been full-time in academia for more than 15 years and I love it. I really enjoy my job. But I'm very mindful of the fact that I've had the chance to you know, become a multi-hyphenate in various ways. And all of those experiences are things I think have really enabled other things I went on to be able to do. Uh, and more than that, and above all that, really, it, they forged friendships that have, have lasted, you know, over decades. So, um, so that's been a, a huge thing in my life that I'll, that through my engagement with, with this particular group and, you know, I'm friendly with other people in the group, but Santos my conduit into it. But I've really enjoyed the bits of work and the association with with other people on that team as well over time. And uh, I'm I, I'm really glad that I guess at that particular time there are a group of people who were bold enough to actually say, let's see where this can go. Took this year off, which was really their career defining decision of what Working Dog could become. Um, and I wasn't on that boat, um, you know, I was committed to other stuff. But I do feel that uh, it was, you know, hugely uh, significant that they did that and I was very, very happy to be, you know, a, in, in some ways a kind of adjunct to some of the stuff that they did. And I, I really enjoyed reading, writing that, um, that, that uh, opener for Frontline, the introduction to the Frontline book, because... To me, when I watched it, you know, Yes Minister was still fresh in our minds and I thought, whatever they're doing here, it's going to be timeless. And I think I was right that you, you play a frontline episode now and it, it doesn't really feel that it's archival. It somehow feels very contemporary. And um, the thing that I really appreciated about them over that period was, you know, the late show was a hugely successful show that ran a couple of seasons and then they changed gear and did frontline and did other things and the bravery around those choices and the adventurous the adventure the adventurous spirit that led to that i think showed just how agile and how innovative they were over a whole range of different genres um not just a sort of what you put in inverted commas as comedy but writing and performing and and filming and editing the episode that you have featured in promptly, which is the Sydney episode, uh, season two, episode 16, and they're doing the Biosphere 2 uh, piss take. And you are one of the four or five reporters that are in the audience. Yeah. Two years under a glass dome, it's certainly, certainly great to be back. And we're happy to, uh, happy to field any questions you may have. Any questions? Yeah. Over there, please. Uh, Laurie Zion, Triple J. Are you, you still at Triple J, Laurie? Good. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question. Were you totally isolated within the dome? 
for the entire two-year period, only two things managed to penetrate the glass dome, a small amount of carbon dioxide and an Amway representative. That was... <laughs> I picked up some washing powder. It was really <laughs> They must have invited me, for better or worse, to do it. And the thing was that at that time, because um, I'd been living in Sydney then for four or five years, so the late show was done in Melbourne. And any chance to catch up, you know, with Santo and the others uh, when they came up to do stuff in Sydney was great. So I, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember the details, I'm pretty sure, though, that they would have said, we're going to do a show in Sydney. You know, will you come along and, and uh, will you be in the sketch? So it was, it, it was, you know, I'm sure it went something like that. And it was incredible because I, you know, with a bunch of friends in Sydney, I mean, one of the things I think, I'm sure other people have pointed this out on your podcast, but one of the things about a show that was on 10 o'clock on a Saturday night back then was that it was water cooler TV. Everybody you knew watched it I'm sure people well you know at that at that stage of my life I'd probably go out afterwards if I was going to go out to <laughs> yeah. catch up for drinks but um in a way that I think is very difficult to convey now a Saturday night TV time slot at 10 o'clock became a compulsory viewing for everyone I knew but um you know they're always in Melbourne and when they came up and did this particular episode in Sydney I thought wow the, the the atmosphere in the audience was just fantastic. It was a big event, you know. There's no other way to describe it, and uh, it was great fun being part of you know part of that uh, posse of journalists whose questions, when you look at them now, aren't that implausible? Of course, you'd ask those things. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great fun. Do you remember when it was revealed that? Uh, barge ass or Lucky Grills was in the audience. Detective Sergeant Barge. I don't, uh, I don't think we're your accredited, Detective Sergeant. <laughs> I'd just like to know why you bunch of mongrels keep taking the piss out we of can't, can't take that. No, can't take that. Take no, no, no. no, I can't accept that. Can you remember that atmosphere at all? Uh, well, everyone just went nuts because he'd been such a big figure in the show and I didn't know about it actually before. I think, you know, even I was surprised that that happened. So I'm sure I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows the context of, <laughs> yeah. of Lucky Grills and Barjars, but... Uh, it was, you know, it was a, a mega moment in TV, really, I think, having him ask a question in the show. And, in fact, it sort of gets back to this element of surprise that they were able to infuse into sketches that would start off and you'd think, okay, what's going to happen here? <laughs> and it, it must be more than just a bunch of uh, <laughs> media people asking questions. There's going to be something else that happens. 
to, to take this sketch into another realm, and that was the market. As you are a DGen Late Show fan, what is, and I'm going to ask you a really hard question here, what is your favourite sketch? Uh, well, there are a lot, but I think that the moment that they pushed into the stratosphere, so that the two-minute toilet break was just a classic idea, and musical mix-up at the end with the, the episode with Joan Kerner was 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 up there, but Piffy, the, when he did the toilet break uh, the, as a sort of musical dance act, I think to me that was the, the funniest thing I'd ever seen on Australian TV. It was it was so out there. Ladies and gentlemen, Graham and the Colonel's opening theme tune as performed by Piffy. I know, you know, when the DVDs, came, videos of DVDs came out, watching that again and again, thinking, how on earth? <laughs> how on earth was this conjured up and turned into something that really just broke outside of the normal bounds of, of sketch comedy? Maybe that's something you could say about the show itself, that, um, you know, it was operating with a number of comedy genres simultaneously and live within each episode. And the element of surprise that came with that particular um, toilet break was just so unusual, never to be repeated. And maybe maybe they didn't realise how funny it would be. I don't know. But it certainly was something that we all talked about. The people I'd watch with every Saturday night, that was for our forever moment um, whenever we talked about TV. Thank you to Laurie Zion for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening. Please feel free to share our podcast around and if you're feeling generous, a positive rating on your podcast provider. My name is Matt for the Champagne Comedy Podcast. Catch you next episode. The Champagne Comedy Podcast is made for champagnecomedy.com and is produced by Matt Fulton Productions, mattfulton.com.au.